As we do, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read this morning's scripture? Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter nine, beginning in verse one, Paul says, now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect that as I said you may be ready. Lest if the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared we not to mention you should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And Father, we thank you this morning for a chance to be together both here, Lord, for those of us who journeyed in to meet together in person, for those who, Lord, are at home this morning of the church family, we just pray your spirit would minister to each and every one of us as we again open the word of God as an act of worship, that your spirit would speak to us things that you would have us to hear and learn from this portion of your word. So we ask, Lord, prepare our hearts accordingly and that your spirit would speak to us each personally. And we ask these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. You know, I have found that unlike us, that God does not have insecurities about anything, nor does God find it taboo, nor does God find it awkward to honestly discuss any subject. And you find if you're willing to read the entirety of the word of God and do as we do as a church family here at Calvary Chapel, which is to study through the entirety of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, that the Holy Spirit addresses in the scripture a variety of matters, all types of different topics, subjects, every issue, and all of it, of course, to help us. And God's word gives us solid and reliable truth to equip us to know God's will and God's ways. And the intention of God is to inform us with healthy instruction so that we would know what's best, so that we would know how to honor God, how to live for God, how to serve him. So that in knowing the truth, we can have right information from God and we can make the best life choices so that we can walk worthy of the calling we've received as followers of Jesus. And this holds true in our perspectives on everything and even our perspectives towards money, towards managing the resources financially that God entrusts to us and even in the area of giving of money. And let me just say from a pastoral perspective, that is the one of the reasons why when I teach through passages like this, chapter 8 last week, chapter 9 this week, I don't bother sheepishly apologizing for the topic that I'm about to teach upon. 
You know, I listen to some individuals teach these passages of Scripture, and they always start out their Bible study apologizing and somewhat saying, listen, we just want you to know we don't, we don't talk about this every week, and we're not, we're not looking for you to give extra money this week. And it's almost as if they apologize for God's word. And they apologize for what God says in his word. They just want to clarify that God forbid someone would think that they actually think there's something beneficial or biblical about the giving of our resources under the Lord or using and managing money God's way. And quite honestly, to me, I feel like if I'm doing that as a lack of integrity and faithfulness to the entirety of the word of God, why don't I apologize about other passages of scripture? Hey, we just want you to know that every week we don't talk about sin. Every week we don't talk about sexual morality. We... we we just study through the entirety of the word of God. And when a chapter comes, the chapter comes. When a topic comes, the topic comes. The benefit of teaching God's word in this way is you can freely just explain and teach and exposit the entirety of the word of God. And every passage, you can speak with the same authority and the same truth and integrity to its context. And if the chapter fits, wear it. If you don't like the next chapter, if you don't like that chapter, just the next chapter is coming next week. And we can just look at God's word with freedom and know that we get the emphasis on the word of God of every topic that God put upon every topic. So as many times as God's word addresses love or repentance or any subject, that's God's emphasis. And we just cover it all. And we just let God's word speak for itself. Now, the last time as we went through chapter eight together... We told you that chapters 8 and 9, the Holy Spirit gives to us in Paul's writing here, the longest continuous, at least we could say continuous section in the New Testament on the subject of financial giving for God's people. Now, to best understand, it's important that we know as a reference point the backdrop of what is being addressed in these two chapters as Paul gives these lengthy instructions and guidance here to the people at Corinth. And allow me, if I could, to be a bit repetitious for a moment for the sake of accurate interpretation of what these verses are addressing in context and not addressing, as well as for our learning. So let me recap, if I could, kind of what I shared last week by way of a setting and a backdrop, because it applies to chapters 8 and 9, so we can know what's being addressed, why it's being addressed, and the purpose why Paul is saying the very things that he's saying here. In other places in the Bible, we read Paul mentioning this same, in small ways, financial gift that he was seeking to collect, to distribute to the suffering saints there at the Church of Jerusalem to assist predominantly Jewish Christians, which mainly Jewish Christians, there were some Gentile Christians, but mainly Jewish Christians that made up the church in Jerusalem that were going through a hard time financially. Paul in Romans 15 mentions this by saying, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. We know from scripture as well as history that many in the Jerusalem church, as I said, who were Jews predominantly, who had chosen to believe upon and follow Jesus Christ of Nazareth as their Messiah, were enduring a hard time, those who had turned to be followers of Christ, under persecution for leaving the ways of Judaism and choosing to now be a follower of Christ. And many of the Jewish people who were now following Jesus as the Messiah were being persecuted due to their beliefs. Some of them were being abandoned by their family. They were being banished from society. Some of them were losing their jobs 
as the result of what they believed. Others were unable to purchase things in the marketplace, and this was causing great economic struggle for what they believed in, as well as on top of that, we know a severe famine had struck the area of Judea as well, where Jerusalem was. And these two things coming together were causing great economic struggle for many of the saints there at the church of Jerusalem. Well, Paul had it on his heart when he became aware of this struggle and need to do what he could to try and alleviate some of the financial crisis that he saw that they were under at this time. So his idea was to ask predominantly the Gentile churches, many of which Paul had established and planted as the gospel went out to the Gentile regions, And Paul had it on his heart to supply a love offering gathered from these Gentile churches and to bring that financial contribution to the church at Jerusalem to support them, to show care and love among the family of God, to alleviate those who are struggling and to take that burden off of them. And he knew this also would be a great unifying work of Jew and Gentile now being one family in Christ and to eliminate a lot of the ethnic tensions that had been there. And Paul had been speaking about this to the various Gentile churches that he wanted to gather up this offering and distribute it. And when he first spoke about it, about a year prior to this time, at Corinth, when they first heard about this idea Paul had, the people of Corinth said, count us in. That's a great idea. We would love, God's blessed us. We would love to be able to help them in their time of financial struggle. We want to participate in that. We see in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul gave them instructions about preparing this gift, which he would then come by later with a group of men to pick up and then deliver to Jerusalem. And it appears the church at Corinth began enthusiastically setting aside resources for this financial donation, but then they got distracted. And something transpired where they didn't follow through. They kind of stopped. And now a year has gone by. And they haven't acted upon what they said they wanted to participate in and what they had promised to give in participating in this ministry project. So Paul now uses these chapters in 2 Corinthians to address this subject, to sort of stir them back to action, to remind them of the importance of getting back on track with their lives spiritually and even this area of the grace of giving, And Paul wants them to remember that it's one thing to talk about giving, it's another thing to actually go about it and to participate in an obedient way. Now, granted, the direct context, as I said last week, is about gathering a contribution to help a group of poor Christians there in the church at Jerusalem. That is the direct context. Yet, nonetheless, it supplies to all of us great spiritual principles that we can glean for ourselves in regards to how we manage resources and the area of giving in our lives as Christians, in the various ways that we can do that, whether it's giving to the Lord in worship, giving to the Lord's work generally, giving to special ministry projects, helping support missionaries in whatever way that we would see God would direct us to. Paul concluded the last chapter in our prior verses by informing that the plan for sending this gift to them of money would be involved in utilizing multiple men, well-respected individuals that who were trusted, who would deliver this money there. And Paul said the reason is we want to do things in an honorable way for the glory of the Lord so that the Lord gets all the credit. And he said, and we want to be very careful that things are done orderly, 
with accountability. And remember, Paul said, avoiding that anyone should blame us that we were trying to steal money for ourselves or take a little bit in, you know, in for ourselves as we ask you. Paul says, no, we want to make sure no one is blamed for any corrupt activity. And so remember, Paul said multiple people were involved. There was order and organization. And he concluded, look with me back in verse 24 as he concluded the eighth chapter saying, therefore, show to them, <clears throat> to the churches, the proof of your love and our boasting on your behalf. So Paul concluded with this encouragement, which now segues into chapter 9, saying that he wanted the believers at Corinth to see this opportunity to give of this financial donation to help their fellow Christians in time of hardship as a way to just prove their love above all things. That it wasn't just about giving of money, it was an opportunity to demonstrate care. That families take care of one another. And that God's people are a family, and so therefore families take care of one another. And Paul says, this is an occasion for you to prove your love to your fellow Christian brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem. Paul says, I've boasted about you guys, how loving and giving you are. So in a sense says, make me proud. And now as he goes on into chapter 9, he says, now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous, however you want to pronounce that, in case I'm pronouncing it wrong for you who are English grammar people, for me to write to you. The idea is it's unnecessary. I don't know why the Holy Spirit just didn't put unnecessary, probably to humble people, me, like you have to read the passage out loud. He says, I don't even think it's necessary for me to write this to you. In other words, Paul's expressing that he has great confidence in what they're going to do. But notice in, in verse 1 there that he does refer to this giving as, notice verse 1, ministering to the saints. So he describes this grace of being able to willingly give financially as a form of ministering, serving the saints or the Lord's people. It's an act of serving the Lord's people. Now, that indicates that there is indeed a purposeful nature in why we would exercise the grace to choose to give of our financial resources. That it's not just giving of money or donating money, it's using financial resources God has entrusted with us as a tool, as an instrument of service to be able to minister and to participate in helping people that God is trying to help. Our giving of money in any way that we possess and manage becomes a way we just cooperate with God in doing works and partnership with God doing his ministry. And notice, if you would, the main emphasis, and you'll see this when you study the entirety of the New Testament, you'll notice the main emphasis of the New Testament in the area of giving is giving to take care amongst the church family. Paul says it's about ministering to the saints. The New Testament teaching of God's people giving is not just giving money to the unsaved world, giving money to the poor that need money. Primarily, you see the injunction in the New Testament about ministering to the saints. The idea is God's people giving of God's resources to help fellow spiritual family members, that the family takes care of the family, and that those resources are distributed and given among God's family where we're aware that those resources are going to be used properly. That they're not being given in a way that then just is kind of sort of just giving money and throwing money after money. And we have no idea really how that money is being used or perhaps why someone's in the situation. Or The predominant emphasis we see in the New Testament 
is using the Lord's resources to empower God's work and to help God's people to minister one to another, as Paul even expressed in the last chapter. And Paul says, honestly, I don't even really think it's necessary to write this. In fact, look what he says, verse 2, for I know your willingness. He's saying, I, I know that you have a willing heart. I trust your heart, he says, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia, now that was the region Corinth was in, was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So Paul indicates here in verse 2, in an encouraging way, that he says, I know your heart, that you were both, he says, already a year ago, and still willing to do what you've done. He says, in fact, I boasted of you because he says, initially, I talked to you first about this, even before the people of Macedonia and the churches there, Berea and Philippi and Thessalonica. And he says, in fact, I came to the area of Achaia first and talked to you and your willingness and zeal to want to be involved in this. He says, it actually was the first thing that actually stirred up the hearts of the people of Macedonia, who Paul said in the last chapter, they became very generous and very given even out of their poverty. And their affliction. And Paul says, I commend you because it was actually your initial zeal to do what's right, to be generous. Actually, that was what stirred their hearts initially to want to participate in the way they did. And I think this is a good reminder to all of us that our zeal to do right things, our willingness to help in whatever form that may be in our Christian life, oftentimes our example can be a powerful example the Lord uses to stir other people to want to do right things themselves. And that's what Paul's saying to the church at Corinth. It was your zeal to want to do what was right. It was your willingness and your example initially to want to participate or be sacrificial or to help. He says that's actually what stirred up others. And they wanted to follow in your example. You know, Hebrews ten twenty four tells us as Christians that we should stir up love and good works among one another. You know, never forget the reality that sometimes your willingness or zeal to do what's right as a Christian may be something that powerfully stirs up other people to be wanting to do what's right themselves. Your willingness to endeavor to do something, your zeal to honor the Lord, a lot of times may be a lot more far-reaching than you recognize as other people are stirred by what you do and it makes them want to follow in your example. Paul says, yet, I have sent the brethren, verse 3, he says, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, that is, they didn't get the gift ready that they said they wanted to donate, not to mention you should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Now here in verse 3 and 4, Paul's describing how the reason that he was sending this advanced team, which chapters 8 and 9 kind of referenced, to go to Corinth was to make sure, he says there, that they were prepared, that they already had this gift ready so that when the team arrived, there was no awkwardness. Paul says there's no shameful feeling of showing up and like, uh, where's the gift? Where's the donation? And Paul says, we didn't want it to be awkward like that. So he said, I was purposely sending this team in advance because we don't want the Macedonians to show up with us. And then here we've boasted that you had this great desire to help and participate. And he says, we don't want you to feel ashamed because you didn't follow through. Notice here, Paul preferred financial matters would not need to be awkward in the way that they were handled. 
One translation renders these verses this way. I'm sending these brothers to be sure that you are really ready as I've been telling them and that your money is all collected already. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention of your own embarrassment if some of the Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them about you. Now, notice if you would two things by way of observation in the midst of this. First of all, that God's people, as it pertains to all of God's will, not just this area of giving money, God's people, as it pertains to all of God's will and all of God's work, whether it's giving of finances or ministering in any form, we should always be prepared. We should always be people who are ready, people who are following through. It is a shame and an embarrassment when we have adequate time to do the thing that God has told us to do or we have said we're going to do for God and we don't use that time properly and we neglect to be ready. What we do in anything that we do for the Lord, we're doing for God's glory and it should be done with that standard. We're doing it for God's people. And so therefore, we should be properly prepared. As Paul says, look, I don't want to show up and you're unprepared and you're just not ready because of your neglect. That's going to be embarrassing to us, embarrassing to you. And Paul says, that's, that's kind of a shame because it was something that, that was being done for the Lord. And so here, I think it's a good reminder to all of us that what we do, we should do for the Lord really well to the utmost effectiveness in our efforts. And we shouldn't just be sloppily throwing something together last minute, getting prepared last minute, just go, oh, I caught me off guard. And Paul says, no, you've had over a year to get ready. And whatever we do for the Lord, God help us not to be embarrassed or dealing with the shame of neglecting to give adequate preparation to be ready to do God's will whatever God's will may be, whatever that thing may be that we're doing. And you notice in these verses as well that as it pertains to the ministry of giving finances, notice the Holy Spirit clearly directing Paul here in his wording to carry things out in such a way where the protocol of going to collect this offering from the church at Corinth was purposely being done in a way to avoid awkwardness. I so appreciate this that Paul was trying to keep the money thing as low-key as possible so nobody was feeling awkward or squirming in their seat. And a main way of doing that was simply just not putting hyper-focus on finances or on money. Paul said, we just want you to be ready before we get there so that when we come there, we don't have to focus on money. We can focus on other things during our ministry time together and that you would just be ready and it would just be a logistical pass-through in this process. And you can tell that's his heart because look what he goes on to say in verse five. He says, therefore, I thought it necessary. In other words, I thought this would be the best approach to exhort the brethren, verse five, to go to you ahead of time. That is before Paul and others arrived to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had notice previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So notice, Paul clearly indicated he wanted the advance team to arrive ahead of time so all the financial preparation and giving could be done beforehand and that they weren't coming to take an offering. They were just coming to receive an offering. 
They weren't taking anything. We're just coming to receive, Paul says, something that we hope you've already done in a right and a proper heart attitude. And Paul, using the maturity he has and wisdom from the Spirit, established this procedure. He says, I thought it was necessary to do it this way because, again, you can see Paul's great example that he didn't want to put hyper-focus on finances with God's people, but just to let it be a simplistic thing as he visited and he saw it necessary to send that advanced team. And he uses this particular protocol because he says as well in verse 5 that doing this in that way would also, Paul saying, it would best ensure that you don't get stumbled and that with a pure heart, you give with the right heart attitude. And Paul understood, look, if you give with a wrong heart attitude, you're not pleasing the Lord. You're not even going to get reward. And you're just going to be a grudging grouch and a grinch over everything you give to God anyway. And so Paul says, I'm doing things in this way purposely because I don't want to in any way stumble you. I want to ensure that if you choose to give, you give with a right heart attitude, that you give in a right attitude in the way that you go about it. Look what he says, verse five. He says, so that your gift would be ready as what? Verse five, a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. That is because you sincerely want to do it and you choose to give to help not as a grudging obligation that you feel that you have to do this. Or we might say, and I think it's a good analogy, like they were paying a spiritual bill, right? I mean, if we were to think of that by way of illustration, we pay our bills, I do anyway, not out of generosity. When I write out my mortgage check or when I pay my electric bill, I'm not, let me be generous. Let me give Atlantic City Electric a little bump this month. Uh, I don't give out of generosity, I give as a grudging obligation going, why is this higher this month than last month? Just like you do, right? It, it's a grudging obligation because you need the lights on or you want heat in the house. Or, or We don't give as a generous act. It's a grudging obligation. We do it because it's obligatory and we typically don't like paying our bills. Look, God does not want us to see giving to him like we're paying a spiritual bill. That's not the heart God wants us to do it in. Ugh. Got to give to the Lord. Uh, Got to pay my spiritual bill, this Christian thing. Got to pay my spiritual bill. Oh, being a part of a church. Oh, God doesn't want us to do it. He wants us to do it as an act of worship and obedience and that we want to participate. Now, that being said, you notice that Paul also here in these verses has no issue in balance to that. He also has no issue instructing about giving money. Though he doesn't want it to be a grudging obligation, he also has no problem talking about the subject and giving good, healthy instruction. In fact, remember, as I said, in the first letter, which we saw when we studied through it a year prior, Paul gave them explicit instructions how to actually go about this. 1 Corinthians 16, can I remind you, Paul said this to the church there, concerning this collection of the saints, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, that day they came together to worship, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now notice in Paul's words there, you see a couple of generic principles in regards to this giving in all spiritual matters. A couple things. First of all, Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 16 that the Christian is to do giving in a way that it's done systematically. That is not sporadically, not periodically, 
but just systematically, that there's a systematic way in regularity and consistency. Paul says to them here, lay something aside on the first day of the week, each one of you. So he says just consistently with regularity. This is how giving should be done systematically. It also should be done as a loving motivation because we do sense our commitment together with the entirety of the body of Christ. Because Paul said to them there in our verses, do this just like the Galatian churches did. In other words, just like the other churches, you do the same. It's what God's people do. It's also here clearly shown that it's to be something that's participated in by everybody. Not just rich or not excluding the poor. Paul says in the verses here, Each one should lay something aside, each one. He's going to say in the verses below, verse 7, let each one give as he purposes in his own heart. So something everybody participates in. And it's to be done, notice very clearly, verse Corinthians 16 said, in a proportionate manner to our income. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, lay something aside. He says, storing up as he may prosper. In other words, Paul's indicating some of you, God has prospered more than others. Some of you, God has prospered less. There are different economic levels. But Paul says, you give in proportion to what your income would dictate. You give relative to what you're able to do according to the way God has prospered you. We are to give in a relative proportionate manner. And it is to be done, as Paul said in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, as well as here in verse 5, it is to be done in a way where it's a low-key issue. Paul clearly keeps saying, do it ahead of time. Don't decide when you walk through the doors of the church. Don't decide when the basket's coming down the aisle. That's not the way to do that. He's going to say, do it ahead of time. It's an act of worship. It's a decision between you and God, he's going to say, and do it with a right heart. Now, it was their neglect to do that, That is why Paul writes what he does in verse 5, because he's trying to encourage them that they would be prayerful and purposeful in the way they would choose to go about this and not be pressured or persuaded when they showed up and then they kind of just last minute do it off the cuff and then their heart is not right and it's a grudging obligation. Look, when it comes to giving of our resources to God, or to the work of the Lord, whether that is giving of our resources to the local church fellowship that we worship at, where we're ministered to, whether it's supporting a missionary, whether it's something like this, giving to a ministry project or helping a Christian in a financial crisis, it's always God's intention that the highest motivation of our giving is that it would be done because we're participating, because we see it in a pure heart that it's an opportunity to give unto the Lord, or it's an opportunity to give to something that helps the work of the Lord, not that it's an obligation that we have to give unto God, or an obligation that we have to participate because the story sounded really sad and we feel guilty if we don't. That's why Paul says, prepare it, verse 5, beforehand so that it can be generous. Listen, giving should be something that's planned, and prompted by love and not by pressure. Again, it should not be viewed as paying a spiritual bill. God help us to drive that out of our hearts. Look, it's providing honor to God and blessing God. And and let me just say this morning, God does not need me nor you to pay his bills. Contrary to how some want to teach the Bible or use verses as a pretext to then blast off and make people feel bad. 
The Bible I read says things like Psalm 50, where God declares, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine. So God says, even if I got hungry, even if they were about to foreclose on my ministry or shut my ministry down for lack of finances, God said, I wouldn't even tell you. God says, the world is mine. In other words, God says, I'm not struggling. I'm the creator. I can speak things into existence. God is more than sufficient. And where God guides, God will always provide. I have lived that in my personal life and seen God do that. You have as well. I've seen the Lord do that from over two decades of ministry. When God is guiding, God will be faithfully providing. And if God's not faithfully providing, sometimes that's where we got to step back and say, oh, Maybe God's not guiding them. And it works both ways. But if the Lord's in something, he always takes care of the needs. And he just lets us participate in contributing in some way something of what he gives to us to get to have the privilege to participate in what he's doing to honor him. But it should be that thought-out decision with a right heart, Paul says. And then verse 6, he goes on to say here, but I say this. He who sows, the picture here of now sowing seed, he uses an analogy. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully or generously will also reap bountifully. So Paul uses this analogy, how giving from God's perspective is seen. And from God's viewpoint, it's an opportunity to invest and to participate in sort of a planting process to see a fruitful harvest be produced as the result of our contribution, of our participating by sowing into something. And he gives here kind of an awareness of how giving works. And here's the reason, because verse 70 is going to say it directly. He shows us how giving works so that we're aware, and then we can then take that and consider how we choose to give. Because he's going to say in verse 7, now at the end of the day, you purpose in your own heart what you want to do. No pressure, however you want to do it. But he says, before I tell you it's your responsibility, let me kind of tell you how giving works, God says. It's like a farmer. If a farmer, he says, is reluctant to sow his seed, whether out of fear or or laziness or greed or, or whatever it may be, and if he sows in a sparing way and he just sows a few seeds and he's kind of reserved and he holds back and he's trying to keep to make sure he'll be okay for next year or something like that, he says, if he sows in a sparing way, making minimal investment, that's fine. But he says, honestly, that only ends up hurting him as the farmer because he then doesn't reap as much as he could have reaped if he had sowed bountifully. And if he spares in his sowing, then as the result of that, he kind of robs himself of the blessing of God's return system, the blessing of God's reward system and reaping system. Now he says on the other side of that, if that same farmer or a different farmer sows plentifully and bountifully, God's sowing and reaping will bless that person because because he sowed more seed, he's actually just going to reap more back in return. He's going to end up having a better harvest for himself and God's going to bless and restore in that giving attitude back to him. And God here in verse six indicates this is how it works from God's divine system in the area of giving financially as well. If a person gives unto God in a very sparing and reluctant way, And maybe they choose to give, but they kind of hold back or they want to do the bare minimum. 
and, and they're willing to give, but they, they just kind of give with a reluctant, sparing attitude. They don't really give as much as they could, or they just give a little bit, and maybe it's because they're trying to make sure they're still okay financially, or they're just not willing to be that generous in their own life. And they're thinking somehow in sparing and holding back that they're keeping their life better or making sure they're better. He says, ultimately, the sad thing is they're really not getting ahead by, by sparing their resources, by holding back and not giving perhaps how they could or should in their greed, he says they're really just robbing themselves. They're really just putting themselves in a place where they're failing to trust God and God's way of blessing, and they're just hurting themselves. Whereas someone who trusts God, if they're willing to freely give and give generously, he says then God honors that. God honors that bountiful giving heart, and they end up seeing the work of God and how God provides and God blesses and just how you can't outgive God, right? The Bible tells us in Proverbs 11, listen what he says. There is one who scatters, scatters, giving it away, yet increases the more. And then there's one who withholds more than is right. That is, they hold back more than they could give. But that leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered. Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase, and so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Look, let me say this morning in Christian love and helpfulness, if you struggle to some degree at this point in your life still with giving, let me just say, that's not just a greed or selfishness issue. Honestly, it's a trust issue. It's a trust issue in regards to you believing God as your father and him declaring this is the way and I'll take care of you. And honestly, it becomes a trust issue. Holding back from giving as God intends us to as his people doesn't keep you financially safe or keep you more financially safe, you know, stable. It actually robs you in the end because you don't yield the benefit of God's reward system to take care of you, and you miss a blessing. However, that being said, notice, God lets us decide. He says, you can give sparingly or you can give bountifully. I don't need it at the end of the day. God says, I'm letting you participate. And he says, you can determine at the end of the day the reward system spiritually, the reward system financially. Proverbs 19:17 tells us this. He who has pity on the poor and lends to the Lord, who he has pity on the poor, lends to the Lord, and God will repay back what he has given. Interesting. God says, when you help those who are in a difficult situation, God says, I see that like you're lending to me, and I promise I'll pay you back on that. And God just gives to us these principles. Proverbs 22, 9 says, he who has a generous eye will be blessed. Look, let me just say to you this morning, as in every other area of the Christian life, don't just go by your human logic. Live by faith. Live by faith that God's way is the best way and trust God in his word. God says in Malachi, test me in this. See if I don't open the windows of heaven and take care of you. Now, that being said, look what he says, verse 7. So let each one then, understanding this, give as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So verse 7 here gives to us, some guidelines from the Holy Spirit, how we should give and also how we should not give. First of all, how we should give. The beginning of verse seven tells us that we should recognize that it is something that, as I said earlier, we all 
should participate in to some degree as a Christian. Because notice verse 7 clearly says, like 1 Corinthians 16, let each one give as he's purposed in his own heart. In other words, the Bible teaches giving to the Lord in his work is not something to be done just by certain Christians, by more affluent Christians, by successful business entrepreneurs as Christians or those who have just done really well for themselves financially as Christians. It's not just for the mature Christians and not for the younger, immature Christians. It's not just for the older Christians and not the younger Christians. It's something for all Christians. That is each one. Every one of us, the word of God teaches, to some degree should see it as a part of the spiritual life just like every other area of the spiritual life. We all have spiritual gifts. We're all supposed to do the work of the Lord. And we're all in the same way to participate in this area as every other area were to all to engage in some degree, regardless of our Christian maturity, our age, our financial status. That being said, he also shows, as I said, very clearly in verse seven, how we should give that we're not obligated or we're not required to give a set amount. Because notice, he says, verse 7, each one should give as he's purposed in his heart. Notice there's no forced amount requested. There's no demand or mandate or obligation on a set amount. He says, the amount you give unto the Lord or his work should be your own personal decision as each purposes in his own heart. That is a decision in your heart between you and the Lord. We each should prayerfully and thoughtfully think through as we seek the Lord, what we should do and then obey what the Lord has put upon your heart as a purpose for honoring God with your resources, giving to the work of the Lord No person should be told, nor forced, nor required, nor get envelopes in the mail of how much they should give or be beaten over the head of what percentage of their reason. It is a personal decision in the word of God. Now, as Christians, we, by way of terms, throw around a lot and talk a lot about this concept of tithing, which is a word that just means a giving of a tenth percent or ten percent. And I know the question exists, okay, here we're talking chapter 8, chapter 9 about tithing. Where does tithing fit into all this? Well, let me just briefly give you some principles to utilize in processing and praying through and purposing in making your own decision in your heart of what that whole concept means to you, even as I myself have to process the same thing as a fellow Christian in my life. As I've said before, from the pulpit here, and I hold this conviction firmly, I do not personally, in my study of the word of God, I do not see in the New Testament that tithing or giving of 10% is mandated in the New Testament. I don't see a percentage of 10% of the income being forced by God as an obligation or command that a Christian has to do this or they're disobeying God. When I study the scripture, I don't see that emphasis there. Now, under the Old Testament law, there was a tithe required according to keeping the Mosaic law. In fact, if you want to live under the Old Testament law, add it up, they actually were required to give almost 30% of their income. So you can go live under the law if you want to. 
In the New Testament, I don't see that. In New Testament, it's a giving by grace. In the Old Testament, they were required to give a tithe, certain tithes under the Lord, to maintain the operation of the temple, to continue to employ the Levites and the priests and the ministers in the Old Testament who served God's purposes. However, we're not under the law now. We are under grace. And we do what we do as a response to grace. And I don't think you can clearly say with integrity that we are obligated as New Testament Christians to have to give 10% of our income in order to obey God in the area of giving. Some of you say, thank God, my favorite part of the Bible study. Now, hold on a minute. I teach everything in balance. The reality is tithing, giving of 10%, if you study the whole Bible, is a principle that was actually in existence prior to the Mosaic law. In fact, Genesis chapter 14, before the law was ever given or mentioned, is the first time the word tithing shows up where Abraham gives a tithe or a tenth of his resources as a responsive act of worship. In Genesis chapter 28, again, God appears to Jacob at Bethel, and Jacob gives a tenth unto the Lord as an act of worship. Jacob says this, of all that you have given me, God, I will surely give a tenth unto you. So the concept and principle of tithing or giving 10% unto God or unto God's works was something that was already in operation before the Mosaic law ever happened. In other words, it was a heart principle. It wasn't a requirement to start out with. It began with a heart attitude. Giving was practiced in that way by God's people before incorporating law. So you ask the question, I'm confused now. Are we supposed to give a tithe or not? Here's my response to that. Why are you asking me? You're supposed to purpose in your own heart what you're supposed to do. In the same way that I have to purpose in my heart and have my own conviction and opinion. For me as a Christian, giving by grace makes me feel like, why would I not want to do something that was being done when people were living under the Mosaic law? Why would I want to do less? To me, 10% of my resources giving unto the Lord has always been a principle and a starting point because I want to honor the Lord. I want to manage his money God's way, and I want to participate in what God's doing. One commentator said this, under the law, God demanded the tithe. Under grace, God deserves my tithe. What an interesting way to consider that again. But each of us have to process that out. He tells us in verse seven also how we're not to give. Notice what he comes back to. We're not to give what? Grudgingly or of necessity. Again, he's reemphasizing the same thing. We're not to give with regret or sorrow, feeling reluctant. There's not to be this complaining or this grumbling in our heart. In other words, we're not to give unto the Lord if there's going to be this grudging sense where as you're giving, you're thinking to yourself, man, if we didn't have to give unto the Lord, we could drive away a nicer car. If we didn't have to give to the Lord, well, I mean, we could have bought a bigger boat. If we didn't have to give the Lord, we could take much nicer vacations. He says, look, there should never be this grudging sense of, man, if I didn't have to give to the Lord. He says, if that's that hard attitude, it's completely off base anyway. That's called grudgingly. Notice he says, nor is it to be something done of necessity. That is where you feel pressured or obligated. Keep that in mind when people try and beat you up for money financially in the work of God. There should never be a time when I'm giving because I feel like I have to do it to solve some problem, to keep a ministry alive. If you don't give, our radio program is going to go off the air. Well, I don't know. 
Maybe God wants your radio program to go off the air. I don't know. Just, just wondering. There should never be that sense of necessity. Oh, I got to do this. Or if I don't, I feel so bad. This, this. God can take care of people. God takes care of his work. There should never be this sense of necessity. We're not to give if there's reluctance or regret. God says, what I love, verse 7, is a cheerful giver. That is, you give it joyously and because you want to please the Lord as a heart of love. Paul says, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he quotes, he who is dispersed abroad has given to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. Notice what he does here, verse 8. The Holy Spirit gives assurance from God to alleviate concerns that we all may have in our humanity in relation to giving. Because here's the truth. Some of us, perhaps at one point in our life, were reluctant to give because we were fearful if we gave, how are we going to take care of ourselves? If I give a portion of my resources to the Lord or percentage of my income to God's work, uh, how's it going to be okay for me? I mean, I got bills to pay. And, and if I do that, then I might not be able to take care of this. And sometimes there's that genuine fear where we're too concerned about our own needs or bills. The Holy Spirit addresses that concern right there in this passage. He says, look, remember, if you give what the Lord has given unto you, what's verse 8 say? God is able, he's more than able, to make all grace abound towards you, that you always will have sufficiency in all things. That's just God's way of saying here, look, I'm not going to leave you suffering if you give to me. If you give of what you possess unto me or to my work, I'm more than able to make sure you'll have sufficient for everything that you need. I'll take care of you, God says. I'll bless that heart attitude, and I'll make sure that that spiritual principle happens where God says you'll never outgive me. You know, Philippians 4, in response to the believers sharing and giving unto the Lord in Paul's ministry work, Paul there gives a promise from the Holy Spirit. Many of us know it. It says this, and my God shall supply all your need according to his glorious riches. In other words, Paul was saying to a group of people at the church of Philippi who had donated to his missionary work. Paul says, I appreciate you contributing to the work of God and the ministry that I'm doing. And he says, the promise of the spirit is this. My God shall now supply all your need. He'll give back to you that which you have given out. So, look, if you worry at times about, man, if I give to the Lord or I start giving to the Lord, what about, what about, God says, what about it? I'll make sure I give you what you need to. I'll make sure I provide for you. In fact, that scripture, Philippians 4.19, in context is a promise to people who give to God. People shouldn't be claiming Philippians 4.19 if they don't give to the Lord. Paul, in context, said to those who give to the Lord, my God shall supply all of your need. So the wonderful thing to realize is managing money God's way is what guarantees God will provide for all your needs. It's what assures you that my God shall supply all of your needs when we don't use money as God intends, or maybe we misuse money that God's entrusted to us. Then perhaps we may find ourselves struggling in ways because we didn't manage God's resources the way God intended us to. Verse 10, he says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower, that's what God is, the supplier, the bread for food, he's the provider, may he supply and multiply the seed that you have sown, giving of your resources, 
to increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything with all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Paul says God is the supplier of all. He supplies seed. He provides bread, and he says, you can trust that God is even the one who will enrich you liberally in every way where you just find yourself thanking God and saying, Lord, thank you so much that as I did things the way you wanted to, you provided, you took care of me, you enriched me. You know, I encourage you, write in your Bible, First Chronicles chapter 29, because there David emphasizes this concept that truly, if we have a right perspective, we're just giving to God everything that belongs to him anyway. We're just giving something back to God. David says this there at the end of those statements. But who am I and who are your people that we should be able to give so willingly as this for all things come from you and of your own we have given to you. David, just we're just giving something back to you because you're the ultimate provider. And recognizing that helps in processing all this. Paul concludes, for this administration of the service not only supplies the needs of the saints, so there's one of the reasons we give, it meets needs. That's one purpose in giving, to supply for needs. But also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. In other words, giving unto the Lord also brings worship and glory unto the Lord. It causes people to thank God for his provision as it comes into their life. Verse 13, while through the proof of this ministry, they will glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ, for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and then by their prayer for you, he says it will precipitate them wanting to start praying for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So Paul says, as you give in this way and they're helped, it's going to prompt their hearts to feel more connected to you because they're going to say, wow, in our time of need, they graciously and generously helped us out. And it's going to cause them to want to minister, maybe not financially, but he said spiritually, they'll start praying for you and asking God to bless you for what you've done. And there's this beautiful balance of the material and the spiritual working all together in the midst of these things. God doesn't see them separate, but all one. Look how Paul concludes the chapter in the section, verse 15. He exclaims, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He brings it all full circle back around and he says, you know what, at the end of the day, thank goodness that as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But he says, bottom line, God's given the most indescribable, greatest gift more than anybody else. And that's what we're simply emulating our father in what he has given, of course, the indescribable gift of his son, Jesus. Romans 8 says, God did not spare his son but freely gave him up for us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes him would not perish but have everlasting life. And it is that seeing of what God has given that should be what inspires our heart to be open-handed, generous, willing people to give back unto the Lord in gratitude and to others in helpful ways. Let's stand.